<laughs> oh, hi there. Oh, the news has been great in the past couple of weeks, huh? I don't know when you guys are listening to this, but as of me recording this right now, uh, two things have been in the news. One is the impeachment, which I'm so sick of. And the other thing is Jeffrey Epstein's back up in the news, been a couple months. Uh, I just, I can't believe that anybody still goes for what the media says anymore. Like, now they're saying that Jeffrey Epstein was murdered. I mean, what the heck? That was a dumb internet thing. Everybody knows that Epstein's death was totally legit. For instance, there's this high-quality, very trustworthy, legitimate comedian named Louis Spears who made a whole video about how legit it was. And Louis Spears isn't to be confused with J.P. Uh, Spears, who also did a video about it and is also a comedian. I mean, come on, just look at the evidence, okay? Totally legit. You need means motive and opportunity to murder somebody means okay so like means is an easy one if all you have to do is choke someone like you know with jeffrey epstein but still uh motive you know you can't get anywhere with motive who would want to kill such a nice guy like old jeff epstein the only people who would have any motive to kill jeffrey epstein were harmless billionaires who would never I mean, who would never murder anybody. And opportunity, I mean, he was in jail. I mean, sure, the guards were asleep and not checking in on him when they were supposed to, and security footage was gone, and all the murderers he was surrounded by were too busy not murdering anybody to notice if anybody was getting murdered. But those are all probably just coincidences, okay? See, what we need isn't evidence. Evidence is too subjective. What we need is someone to come out and say, oh... Hey guys, so I, uh, I totally saw the whole thing go down, and uh, I can confirm that this whole thing was 100% totally legit. Uh, no foul play. Like, yes, that's what we need. We need a witness. That'll shut the internet up. And no, this is not a conspiracy podcast. This is Redeeming the Time. We're talking about John. The Gospel of John. Thank goodness John gave us a witness when we needed one. See, the evidence should be enough to come to a proper conclusion. But even though sometimes it it isn't when it should be, uh, God still provided us with a witness. Thank goodness. Let's talk about it. Cue the music. So, as I just stated, we are studying the book of John and the different themes that John has incorporated into his gospel. One of those themes is witness. Well, witness is part of a much larger theme, actually. John has structured his entire gospel like a court. It's like the very identity of Jesus is on trial. You see, in a trial, you're trying to get to the truth. And of course, the truth is a theme in John's gospel. We talked extensively about that in the last episode. In this episode, we're looking at how witness, the role of witnesses in the court. So anyways, I was talking about Jeffrey Epstein's totally legit death. 
and having a witness in that situation would obviously be helpful so that we could understand the situation better, because it totally wasn't murder. We just need a witness to prove it. Well, you see, John talks about witness quite a lot. So, anyways, this whole court narrative, there's themes of truth and mystery and people trying to figure out who Jesus is, there's verdicts being made in the results of the investigation, uh, and there's these signs, we've got evidence, we've got the seven signs of Jesus, which I've already talked about, and how that points back to Moses uh, and the plagues. That's like the coolest thing I think that i found is that it's so cool, and I haven't found any literature on it still. If you have found anyone who talks about how the seven signs correlate to the ten plagues, uh, please send me that. I want to see scholarly stuff on this. I discovered that kind of on my own and haven't heard anything like that. Uh, that's back in our episode, our second episode on Moses. Uh, so there's signs as evidence, but then there's the recurring theme of witness and testimony. So if you want to learn more about a witness, I recommend going to the Bible Project podcast. That's just, it's a great place to learn about uh, just about anything in the Bible. So they have their own podcast in addition to their famous videos on YouTube. Uh, and they did an episode of that with a member of their staff on uh, on Witness, which was kind of funny because I didn't find it until I was starting uh, work on this episode. I was a little behind to listening to my podcast, and while I was in the middle of doing research for this, I happened to uh, take a break and look at my podcast list, and I was like, oh my gosh, The Bible Project stole my idea before I had it. (laughs) No, uh, The Bible Project did a really cool episode on Witness that actually helped quite a bit. So anyways, the the summary point that I'm going to take out of that is that to be a witness, to be a witness in court, which is our court theme here, the thing about witness is that it's both personal evidence and impersonal evidence. So like the signs, the signs are a witness. We'll talk about that a little bit later. Or it can just be someone's testimony, someone saying, hey, this is how it is. I saw it go down. This is what I understand. Someone who's there and intimate with the situation, who can help those who weren't so intimate with the situation, understand it, like a witness in court. The jury wasn't there. The judge wasn't there. The lawyers weren't there, almost likely. But the witness can help them understand. That's what the witness is for. And in Jewish thinking, the witness can be both the personal evidence and the impersonal evidence. Also, another thing that you've got to understand about uh, Jewish culture and witnessing is that in Jewish law, for instance, in like Deuteronomy 19.15, I believe there are other references too, uh, the Jewish law says that you need two or more witnesses for it to be held as true. Uh, Our English translations of the Bible, I don't know how this holds up in Hebrew, but in English it's kind of funny. I was talking about this uh, with a guy the other day, and it says you need like, yeah, two or three Two or three things in the law are usually so rigid, but it says, yeah, two or three witnesses. The idea is don't just go off of one. Get a few. The more, the better. Two or three witnesses are needed to make a claim about someone that's truly convicting. So that leads to the question. If we've got all this thing going on about witness, you know, we're thinking about witness, we're thinking about court. How many witnesses does Jesus call? Does he have at least two? Has he got his two or three in there? He's got seven. (sighs) got to be kidding me. Seven? Seven is our number. So (laughs) here's the deal. I wasn't even going to make this podcast. I was going to skip this theme. When I had laid out the original episodes that I wanted to make, I just quickly had gone through the book of John and had highlighted all the different themes. Uh, I had watched the John movie that I referenced. I'll put the link into that in the description of this podcast again. I had watched the 
John movie, which is word for word, the book of John in a, in a certain translation. I picked up on all the themes there because I was forced to, you know, sit down and watch it at a certain speed and couldn't gloss over words. I picked up on all the themes and one of them that I found was witness. And when I finished the truth episode and I went to go uh, do research and do the witness episode, I said, there's nothing here. There's just, I can't imagine I'm going to find something that's worth doing an entire episode. So I was going to do it in like a half episode, do like a combined but there wasn't another one that deserved to be lumped in with it. So I was just like, you know what? We're going to skip it. We're going to go right to the next theme. And then I'm driving down the road I'm on my way to work. And I don't even remember the exact situation. But I, I found myself saying, you know, that situation needs someone who can who can witness to Christ. And then I was like, oh, crap. I really need to make an episode about witness, don't I? There's really something there. And, of course, there was. As soon as I started looking into it, the first thing I found was that John organizes his books so that there are seven witnesses, which means if it was significant to John, it's significant to me and it's significant to us. So, who are these seven witnesses? Of course, uh, let me remind you that in Hebrew, the reason that uh, seven is so important is that it means completeness. It's all. It's a whole thing. Uh, seven is the cycle of the week. That's from Hebrew, the, the Hebrew uh, ideas from the scriptures. It, number seven is a complete cycle. It's complete. It's all. So Jesus, of course, doesn't call two or three witnesses like Deuteronomy calls four. He calls seven. He has all the witness he needs. Let's phrase it that way. All the witness he needs. He's got seven witnesses. Who are these seven witnesses? Well, the first one is John the Baptist. All right, that's in John 1.19. I'm not going to open up any of these, but you can check it out. Uh, John 1.19 calls John the Baptist a witness. It opens, the book of John opens with 18 verses talking, it's like the introduction, the introduction that I love so much. And then the next part of the book, it's called the book of signs by scholars, and for good reason. This is the section of the book where the first six out of Jesus' seven signs uh, takes place. It's his ministry, essentially. The next part of the book after that is the discourse, the farewell discourse, and then the conclusion and the epilogue and so on and so forth. Uh, but the book of signs, which is the main body of the book of John, starts in chapter 1 in verse 19. And it says, and this is the testimony of John the Baptist. So the story actually starts after it gives you its cool introduction. The story actually starts with John the Baptist and his testimony. And that whole section starts with John the Baptist and then passes on uh, to these disciples who are with uh, John the Baptist and then went to Jesus. We'll talk about those guys again later. And then the next uh, person that's called as a witness is Jesus himself. You can read about that in chapter 3, uh, verse 11 in particular. It's uh, Jesus. Jesus is a witness to himself. This is during his conversation with Nicodemus. Our third witness is the Samaritan woman. Again, I love that story a lot, too. I keep talking about it in, like, every episode, I swear. The Samaritan woman at the well in chapter 4 is a witness in, uh, in chapter 4, verse 39. So, the Samaritan woman, after her whole discussion with Jesus, and then the second uh, he reveals that he's the Messiah, she just drops what she's doing, and books it for town. She goes to town, tells all of her friends in the whole town about uh, this this man that she had found that could, uh, could tell her everything she had ever done. And as a result, this whole town comes to Jesus, and it says many of them believed because of the woman's witness. So that's in John chapter 4, particularly verse 39. So our third witness is the Samaritan woman. Fourth witness, now this is a three-round right here, and it's a few verses in a row. Witness number four, Jesus' own works, 
Five, the Father is a witness. Six, the Scriptures are a witness. That all takes place in uh, chapter 5, verse 36 through 39. You'll see those three. It's part of a whole discourse. So those are three more witnesses. And then seven, last witness, which conveniently takes place right towards the end of the Book of Signs. That's in chapter 12, 17. Uh, some of the people who had earlier witnessed Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead witness uh, when Jesus comes into Jerusalem and say, hey, this guy raised a dude from the dead. That's pretty cool. So we have seven witnesses. And as far as I could tell, not being a scholar, uh, I didn't find anything that was particularly awesome, mind-boggling about these seven witnesses, other than the fact that there's seven of them. Pay attention to them. These are the people who are explaining to the world who Jesus is. So you've got uh, Jesus works, you've got the Father, you've got the scriptures, you've got people who saw him raise uh, Lazarus from the dead, you've got the Samaritan woman, you've got John the Baptist, you've even got himself. So, those are the seven witnesses. So pay attention to what they have to say, because what they have to say is pretty cool. Uh, and we're going to get later on. All of those kind of have other stories that go with them. So, like my favorite, you will see in a later episode, uh, the Samaritan woman. All the people that follow her to go see Jesus, uh, they don't believe just because of what she said. Uh, they say something along the lines of, yeah, we, we believed what you said and came to see for ourselves. And now we can see for ourselves that Jesus is the savior of the world, uh, which is just such a cool story uh, with such a fitting end. I love it. In any case, all of those witnesses are part of bigger stories that you can go check out. I'm not going to deal with that right now because there's actually something else that I want to go talk about and deal with. Something really cool that I think you're going to find and uh, uh, that you're going to learn from. So I'm going to end this section with this question for you to think about, all right? Who wrote John's gospel? Well, it's John. Duh. But, uh, which John? <laughs> Oh, ladies, gentlemen, boys, girls, and dragons, welcome down the knucker hole. Let's go. So here's the deal with who wrote John. It is a guy named John. It's a little debated, though. So I'm basing my research here off of research by a scholar named Richard Baucom in his book, The Testimony of the Beloved Disciple, Narrative, History, and Theology in the Gospel of John. Uh, I've read the, some portions of this book that were relevant to this discussion, uh, which really the whole thing's relevant, but I read like the really relevant part. Definitely made me interested in getting into more of Balcom's works. The guy's a genius. Uh, so anyways, Balcom believes that John was written by a different John. So it's not John the Apostle, not John uh, the Disciple, not John son of Zebedee. That's the John that we typically uh, attribute this gospel to. Balcom argues, using both the text and extra text, uh, outside the text sources, that John's gospel was written by John the Elder. So, like, this is in Second John, also written by John the Elder, where he tells, he introduces himself from the Elder, 
in the beginning of that letter. So this is John the Elder, who we believe is someone different from John the Apostle. And John, the Elder, seems to have written this gospel. And so he is a disciple, but he's not one of the twelve. So Balcom argues that John, the Elder, a disciple, not the disciple, a disciple, is the disciple whom Jesus loved. So those of you familiar with John, I don't think we've talked about him much on this show, but the disciple who Jesus loved is this recurring character that keeps coming up in the book. And it's always been kind of strange. Like, when you're traditionally thinking about John the Apostle, you're wondering, why the heck does he call himself that? That sounds really kind of like high and mighty. He's like, oh yes, I am the one whom Jesus loved. Oh, deal with it. That sounds really prideful. And... I've always thought that was really strange. Why does he call himself that? Like, he could have just said, one of the twelve, or John the disciple, he could have just identified himself. In fact, at the end, he kind of does identify himself, if we're assuming that the author and the disciple are the same person, which, that's what it says. So, the beloved disciple is the author, and the author is John the disciple? No, it's John the Elder. So if you want to look into his sources for that and the, the whole debate, you can check out that book. Again, it's Richard Baucom, The Testimony of the Beloved Disciple, Narrative, History, and Theology in the Gospel of John. I'll put like an Amazon or a Google Books link in uh, the description of this so you can go check that out. But more important than that, that's really not what we're going to be spending our time on here is uh, whether the book was written by John the Apostle or John the Elder. We're going to look at one of the more important points that comes out of that, which I can't really explain without having first explained that. Uh, so, Balcom points out how the narrative in John is all about witness, and it's not just the seven witnesses. There's, like, the eighth witness that isn't part of the seven. This witness is the author himself. So, Richard Balcom believes that the beloved disciple is the author, ideal witness in the story. He thinks the narrative points to that. And he says, not the ideal disciple, that's a different thing, but he's the ideal witness. He knows so much about the story. So let's talk about that. He made three points of argument as to why the beloved disciple is the ideal witness, why his particular witness, his testimony in court about Jesus is so particularly powerful and highlighted in the Gospel of John. Richard Baucom, point number one, the beloved disciple is almost certainly the anonymous disciple who hears John the Baptist witness and joins Jesus. So again, remember how I was just talking about John the Baptist? There are two disciples. One of them gets identified as Andrew off the top of my head, and the other one stays anonymous. So this explains quite a few things. One, it explains why the story starts with John the Baptist. Uh, so the testimony, the in the book of John, when it explains Jesus' baptism, we get a removed view of it. It doesn't actually come directly, like in Luke, I think it is, the story is, or Mark, anywhere else where the baptism is mentioned. It might be all three of the synoptic gospels. Uh, it just says straight up what happened. And Jesus went and he was baptized by John the Baptist. And John said, you know, you should be the one baptizing me, but no. And so he baptized him and the dove comes and oh, it's the Holy Spirit. This is my son. All right. You probably know that story. In John, you get John the Baptist telling that story instead of just the story itself. And then the narrative from there goes on when John sees Jesus one day, presumably several days after this happened or something like that. And he's like, hey, that's Jesus. That's the guy. 
and these two disciples leave John the Baptist. John the Baptist exits the narrative, and the narrative now focuses on Jesus. So the author seems to be in the perspective of what's going on in the story with John the Baptist, one of those two disciples, and then it goes to be with Jesus. So it's the author almost certainly isn't Andrew, but it's very possibly that anonymous disciple. So that's his first point, is that it's probably that anonymous disciple and the beloved disciple are the same person. Number two, Balcom points out how the beloved disciple is present at key points in the story. So again, this is he, he witnesses John the Baptist in the beginning. John the Baptist calls Jesus in 135, uh, chapter 1, verse 35, he calls Jesus the Lamb of God. And then the author sees the fulfillment, the author, the beloved disciple, sees the fulfillment of that Lamb of God, almost prophecy, in 1934. Now, the interesting point about 1934, now this is when uh, the beloved disciple sees Jesus get stabbed. Instead of his legs are broken, he's, he's poked in the side by a soldier with a spear, and blood and water come out. So a prophecy is fulfilled that his bones aren't broken, and blood and water pour out, and that's got all sorts of imagery there. And then the narrative immediately validates that witness, almost like it's trying to highlight the point that it is fulfilling what John said previously, John the Baptist said previously in the narrative. He says, Uh, in 1935, that, you know, this is his witness, we know that his witness is true. And then we've got other stories, like in chapter 18, uh, verse 15 and 16, also likely referring to the beloved disciple, although it's not identified for a few reasons. And of course, he's also tied to Peter's denials from that passage, and redemption in the epilogue, and all that. So he's right there at key points of the story. If you read through the story, Uh, or perhaps watch through that movie. Again, it's a phenomenal way to look at the themes in John is to watch that John movie because it really forces you to, essentially the themes slap you in the face. You just see the whole thing. So he's there at key points in the story. That's point number two. Point number three, Richard Balcom. The beloved disciple is painted as having a special spiritual insight to the events of the story. So like in chapter 20, verse 8 and 21, 7, Those are some examples. We're going to actually stop and read those. So we're going to start in chapter 20, verse 8. So chapter 20 tells this story about how Mary Magdalene goes to the tomb, and the tomb's empty, and she books it back, and she's like, guys, the tomb is empty. And then Peter and the beloved disciple book it for the tomb. Now, the beloved disciple makes it there first, but he doesn't go into the tomb. He just sits on the outside, and he sees some of the stuff on the inside. And then Peter comes up behind him, and he goes in. And then chapter 8, sorry, no, chapter 20, verse 8. Then the other disciple, who came to the tomb first, went in also, and he saw and believed. All right, now that sounds really subtle, but this is part of his whole story. He has insight into what's going on. Peter goes in, sees the evidence, but the beloved goes in, sees the evidence, and believes. He understands, whoa, I know what this means. This means that Jesus actually came back from the dead, which totally fits with everything else that had been going on. Read uh, chapter uh, in verse 9. For as yet they did not know the scripture, that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away to their own home. So he didn't know the scripture, but he understood what was going on. And then in chapter 21, verse 7, this goes down after, in the epilogue, I'm sure you are familiar with this story too, Uh, If not, I'll give you a quick little briefing here. This is after the resurrection. 
uh, a bunch of the disciples are out on a boat and they're, they, they fish like all night and they don't catch a thing. And then this guy from the shore who is Jesus, but they don't know that yet, says, cast your net on the other side of the boat. And they're like, okay, sure, why not? And they chuck it over the other side of the boat and they pull in so many fish that it's like the net's tearing, they can barely do it. And then verse 7 of 21, Therefore the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. Nobody else really seemed to notice until, or at the very least, the beloved was the first one to notice. So that's pretty important too. So he's got special insight into the story. Plus, if you just read the narration, if we're saying that the beloved is the same person as the author, which the end of the story in the epilogue does too, so you'd have to make a pretty good argument for that. Um, anyways, the narration of what's going on, as well as how the beloved disciple himself is depicted as understanding what's going on, also make the beloved the ideal witness. So those are the three points that Balcom really makes uh, and, and drives home, trying to explain how the beloved disciple really is the ideal witness. Not the ideal disciple, but the ideal witness. He's the guy who has the authority to say what's going on, which makes it really special that he's the author. And to tie all that in, I'm going to read the epilogue portion here. So we're going to read chapter 21, starting in verse 20. Mind you, this is after the whole fishing event. Uh, Peter's gone in and he's had the whole denial three times thing. Uh, Do you love me, Peter? Yes. Do you love me, Peter? Yes. Feed my lambs. You've probably heard that story before. Then after that whole section, Peter says this in uh, chapter 21, verse 20. Then Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following, who also had leaned on his breast at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, but Lord, what about this man? So he's like, so is this guy going to die? That has to do with the prophecy right before. Is this guy going to die too, the disciple whom you love, the beloved disciple? And Jesus said to him, verse 22, if I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Then this saying went out among the brethren, that this disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die, but if I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? Verse 24, this is the disciple who testifies of these things and wrote these things, and we know that his testimony is true. And there are also many other things that Jesus did, which if were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would have been written. Amen. So the ideal witness here, the beloved disciple, John the Elder, says, hey, Jesus said, what if I remain until he comes back? But then he includes a story about how that doesn't mean that he's not going to die. So what does that mean? That's very weird how he brings in his own witness and this book and not dying all in one spot. That's very strange. Well, the good news is our scholar Richard Baucom he's got a little insight for that. So I'm just going to read a direct quote from Baucom because he's just, he's fantastic. So here's the quote from Baucom's book. It might have been thought that whereas it was appropriate to Peter's mode of discipleship for him to lay down his life for the sheep as Jesus had done, it would be appropriate for the beloved disciple's mode of discipleship for him to remain until the second coming. Now, just hit the pause right there. What he's talking about is Jesus has advised Peter and said, this is what's going to happen. You are going to lay down your life for my sheep. He tells him, feed my lambs, feed my sheep, so on and so forth in that passage. And then he explains to Peter how he's going to die. And that has something to do with Peter's role as a disciple, which was to be a leading church father. But that's not what Jesus had in mind 
for the beloved disciple, John the Elder. What he has in mind for him is that he should remain until the second coming, until he comes again. Keep going with this Richard Bauckham quote. As the specially privileged witness to Jesus, his survival to the second coming would ensure the continuance of his witness to Jesus until Jesus' coming. So his goal, of course, again, I'm pausing from Richard Bauckham here, the goal of the beloved disciple, of course, is as a witness. This is his job for the church, not Peter's job. His job is a witness. And so if he sticks around until Jesus comes, then we always have the ideal witness right here to explain who Jesus is. He has the testimony. He can tell us. Keep reading Baucom. But by the time he writes chapter 21, verses 20 through 22, this thought is no longer necessary. He has now written the gospel in which he sums up and completes his witness. His witness can now remain until the second coming, whether or not he personally does. End quote. So what this means is, John the Elders, or at the very least whoever John this is, but seems to be John the Elder, the beloved disciple, his witness can remain whether or not he does remain. His role in the church, which is being a testimony to who Jesus is, doesn't have to live only as he lives. John is dead. The guy who wrote this book is dead. That's unfortunate, but that's the way the world works. It's been 2,000 years. He's dead. But his witness is very much alive. That John's gospel has stood out from the rest of the gospels for all of our history of the Bible. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called synoptic gospels, but John is kind of something on the other end. It's not quite the same. Where the other gospels focus a lot on Jesus' teaching, Jesus has little to no moral teaching in all of the book of John. Just about everything he's talking about is his own identity. John is like, John is marching to the beat of his own drum. He's got this different mission, this different narrative. His whole goal is that he is not to teach as Jesus taught. He is to be a witness to who Jesus is. And he's been living that out since Jesus was here. And as long as the gospel of John survives, which I, it will, then the witness of John survives until the second coming. And so he has not died. As a human, he's dead. As a witness, he's very much alive. Don't you find that to be true? As you're reading and studying the book of John with me, do you see how his witness is so much alive? That's really cool because I believe that to be a witness is part of the highest calling of being a Christian. Why don't we stop and talk a little bit about what it means to be a witness and the calling to be a witness of Jesus Christ. Talking about witness, one of the more interesting things about the book of John is that it doesn't record the ascension and doesn't record the Great Commission. So I'm not really a scholar, but I think I can guess why. A lot of what's important about the Great Commission is that it's telling you to go and make disciples and baptize and overall just be a witness. That's what the Great Commission does. It's a direct command, go be a witness. 
But John's gospel doesn't need that to tell you to be a witness, because instead of ever explicitly stating to be a witness, it draws the beautiful picture of what it means to be a witness, and having its complete rainbow of witnesses, the seven, and then the author who is a witness, whose witness, as long as you're reading this book, is not dead, you say, once you are revealed, once you've opened up to this idea of who Jesus is, you too become a witness. You have the drive to be a witness. You've seen what it is to be a witness, and you say, that's awesome. I want to be a part of that. And so you become a witness too. And so you don't need the Great Commission to say, go and make disciples. And of course, we still do have that in other, uh, in other records of the gospel that we have. But in John's gospel, it's not important. Paul says in Romans uh, to offer yourself as a living sacrifice because this is your, uh, your reasonable gift, your reasonable worship, your reasonable service. Well, the reasonable response, the reasonable service after reading John's gospel and being opened up to the nature of Jesus' character is to be a witness yourself. And you carry on the undying witness of John's gospel. You take what you've learned, and and it doesn't end with you. You hear that John paints the signs of uh, Jesus' miracles in a way that references Moses. You're like, dude, that's nuts. I mean, they just they line right up. You got the water and the wine. You got the darkness of the blind guy. You got the Passover and everything in between. That's awesome. And you don't just sit there and you know keep it to yourself. You're like, dude, that's sick. And you go tell everybody. At least I hope that's what you did after you listened to my episode on that, because that's what I do. Anytime I'm talking about John, it's the first thing that comes up. I'm like, yo, did you know this? Because this is awesome. You become part of the undying witness, which is the highest calling of a Christian, and especially of anyone who reads the book of John. You become a witness to Jesus' character, and that's really special and really cool. Let's take a minute and look at how Jesus himself talks about witness after he's gone. So we're going to look at uh, John chapter 15, starting in verse 26. But when the helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he, the Spirit, will testify of me. Aha, a witness. Check out verse 27. And you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. He's talking specifically to the disciples here, the ones who have been enlightened feels like the wrong word, but they've been exposed to this. They, so they can witness. They were witnesses, so now they can give their testimony as to who Jesus is. Keep reading. 16.1. These things I have spoken to you, that you should not be made to stumble. They will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers God a service. <clears throat> Saul, anybody? And these things they will do to you, because they have not known the Father nor me. But these things I have told you, that when the time comes, you may remember all of them. And these things I did not say to you at the beginning, because I was with you. So, here's the deal. Jesus is talking about how the disciples, with the power of the Holy Spirit, are going to witness. And that's going to be really cool. But, what's going to happen is the world is going to totally reject that witness. They're going to kill you thinking they're doing God a service because of what you're saying. It's so controversial. It's so 
not it so doesn't sit right with humanity with the Jews or with the Gentiles it's not an easy message to swallow and I was listening to I think who was it not Charles Stanley uh yes Charles Stanley on the radio this morning and he was talking about just how difficult how insane it is to to accept the gift of of God's grace because the one thing that it requires you to do is to put your own pride down and say, this isn't about me, this is about Jesus. I cannot save myself. That's so counterhuman. It's so difficult. So people will find their reasons to reject this witness. And they're going to hurt you, and they're going to kill you, and they're going to kick you out of their gatherings. But the helper will be there. Hmm. See, in a world where the truth is rejected, and people persecute those who don't deserve it, the highest calling is still to be a witness especially in that world. And Peter, who's a faith superstar, wasn't even capable of doing this. He had this whole denial thing with Jesus towards the end there. Well, that's not great. That's not great at all. And then if you read in chapter 12, in verse 42-43, it, it talks about people who believed in Jesus, but they were too scared to do anything about it. They kept their mouth shut because they were worried they were going to get kicked out of the synagogues. Uh, John says it's because they valued their opinion, because they valued the opinion of man more than they valued the opinion of God. They cared more about how people saw them than how God saw them. And so they're put down because their witness, they allowed their witness to be suppressed. The highest calling is to, against culture, against the things that would silence the gospel, is to be a witness. So go to the stand. Swear in as a witness. When they persecute you, witness. When they throw out the truth, all the evidence, they get rid of it, start coming with their lies, you witness. When they're willing to call anyone and anything God, except for Jesus, which they'll do all the time, you witness. When injustice rules, deception reigns, chaos just takes over the world, you witness. When the whole world sits silently, you stand and you witness. That is the highest calling of being a Christian. Shining the light of the gospel to everyone. Your friends, your enemies. Showing the love that comes with being a child of Christ. It's all one calling. The highest calling. That is your reasonable service in the mission. And what's the mission, by the way? Let's think about that for a second. Dang, what is the mission? What are we all working towards? Why did Jesus even come? Oh, well, it's to forgive sins. He came to die on a cross, forgive sins. Yeah, but th there's more to it than that. Think bigger. Go bigger. There's another theme in John, and that's what we're going to talk about in the next episode. And I can't wait to talk about it. We're going to get to the heart of why Jesus came at all. But in the meantime, what I want you to be thinking about is witness. We're here to redeem the time, and we've been redeeming our time by learning about the one, by learning about Jesus, really. And this is all going somewhere eventually, too. Once I'm done the John study, then we're going even further. But you can redeem the time now by not wasting it with stuff that's dumb. Witness to the gospel. Take John's witness into your own personal life. Share it around with the people who are around you, the people who need it most. You have the power to do that because you have the helper. Or at least you should have the helper. 
This is a ministry towards Christians, so I'm assuming that Christians are listening. If you are a Christian, you have the helper. If not, I would look into that. Uh, you are able to email the Redeeming the Time page with anything. We have an email address. You can find it. It's on the bottom at the links at the bottom of the page on redeemingthetime.online. I'm not going to talk more about that in this episode, but if you have questions about that, you can email and I will talk to you about that. But if you are a Christian, you have the helper, you have the Holy Spirit, and he gives you the power to witness. And you can learn from John's witness. And you can redeem your time by being a witness to Christ. That is the highest calling. That's all the time that we've got for today, guys. But I do want to make some cool announcements. First of all, I'm using the Twitter a lot more. So you can follow the Redeeming the Time Twitter. Um, It's at Time Redeeming. Format it like a first and last name at time redeeming. Uh, but you can go um, online, redeeming the time dot online. Go to the bottom, you'll see a little bird on a little gray circle down there. You can click that, that'll take you to our Twitter. Uh, so you can follow that. Here's the deal with me using Twitter more. Uh, so Facebook, uh, I've been using Facebook mostly, and it's just a terrible platform. It's so frustrating to use as a creator. I can't get the name changed. They've been so... It's got my old name since before I started redeeming the time, and I cannot get rid of that for the life of me. I went through so many different humans, so many different robots, I could not get it. So I just just don't go for it. Twitter is much better. So here's the deal. If you get on Twitter, you're going to get all the content that you get on Facebook. You're going to get announcements when we post a new episode. You're going to get previews of new episodes. I'm working on cool new audio previews too, so that's going to be coming down the hatch. You're going to get all of that content on Twitter and on Facebook. But on Twitter, two things are going to happen. One, Twitter's actually going to show that to you, unlike Facebook. And two, uh, you're going to get behind the scenes. I want to use Facebook as little as possible, so I'm not going to be posting bonus content to Facebook. On Twitter, though, I can do behind-the-scenes stuff like I'm filming right now. I've actually been filming on Twitter for this entire end segment here. So if you're watching on Twitter right now, you're seeing this a week, maybe even more, before this podcast episode comes out. And if you're listening to this podcast, oh, you're behind the times. You can't even see my sick recording closet in the dark lit by one fluorescent light that's got like five watts. So anyways, here's the deal. Follow the Twitter. You'll get cool stuff. You'll get to see behind the scenes, and you're going to get all kinds of fun stuff. Uh, I'm going to be posting quick little videos there. You're going to see all the content you see on Facebook and more, which is cool, and Facebook will actually show it to you instead of that dumb thing that your friend shared. Uh, It's just a terrible platform. Get off. Get off that platform. Anyway, so that's our big major announcement. So uh, go head on over to the Twitter because that's going to be a lot of fun. Also, uh, if you really do enjoy Redeeming the Time podcast, I know we haven't done too many fun episodes lately. It's hard when I'm doing school. Uh, I really do enjoy this, um, though, and I've learned a lot about the book of John. It's been it's been months since we started in the book of John. This book is awesome, and I've, I've learned so much, not only about John, but about the whole Bible and about uh, scholarly writings for it. It's just really, really cool. So if you're learning, if you find value in what I'm doing here and what Credo's doing here, speaking of which, read Credo's new article, Redeeming the Time, uh, Redeeming the Time dot online slash articles. You can check out uh, his article. It's cool stuff. I love reading uh, Credo's stuff. Anyways, if you like what we're doing here on Redeeming the Time, please just share it around. Um, I would love to get numbers up, and that's not a pride thing. That's just a, I want to see that uh, what's going on here is getting spread into a world that's just, I think, needs this kind of stuff. That needs 
the positive practical stuff and the internet could always use stuff that's not more negative you know we're all sick of the word impeach like I swear if I hear the word impeach again I'm gonna like start ripping hair out I don't even care what side you're on we're just sick of that let's share something around that's actually really cool so if you want to help out a small uh, studio startup who's just trying to make content on the internet there's no charge you're never gonna hear ads Uh, we're fully supported we're not asking for money but you can do your part by sharing around something that's important and meaningful to you, uh, which I'm hoping we are. In any case, that's all the time we got for Redeeming the Time. We're going to see you on the next episode. We're talking about oneness. Oneness. Ah. Also, Epstein's death was totally legit.